just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Iona Craig, the foreign reporter. Craig is a freelance investigative journalist who has focused on Yemen and the Arabian Peninsula since 2010. Since March 2015, Iona has been the only international journalist to repeatedly cross the front lines to report on both sides of Yemen's ongoing conflict and humanitarian crisis. Her work has won multiple awards. She was awarded the Martha Gellhorn Prize for Journalism in 2014, where the judges said of her work, Often alone and risking her life, Iona has for almost four years given a voice to the ordinary people of Yemen. She was awarded the 2016 Orwell Prize for Journalism, and most recently she has co-curated an exhibition at the Imperial War Museum North in Old Trafford, Yemen Inside a Crisis, which opens today, running until late January. So Iona, thanks very much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. So to begin on this podcast, we like to go back to what you were doing before you were in your current role. And you didn't have the most traditional route into journalism, you could say, because you were a horse trainer and jockey for 13 years. Were you always a risk taker? No, not at all. In fact, I don't think I'm a risk taker at all. I'm very stubborn. Um, I think that's more about me than there necessarily is bravery, stubbornness. I think I had that from a small, being a small child. But uh, yeah, I wanted to do journalism when I was at school, but I was not a very good student and also dyslexic and grew up in a time before computers and spell check. And so was told by teachers at school that yeah, journalism wasn't really the route for me. So ended up going into the racing world mainly because that was my love as a child with kind of horses and ponies, which is what I grew up with. And then, yes, did that for sort of 15 years in the end and um, then realised I probably hadn't used my brain in a, in, a, in, a, in a very, certainly not in a very academic way anyway, for, for many years and uh, realised I didn't necessarily want to be in racing in, a, in another 10 years and thought um, that, yes, I'd go back to plan A and, and um, try and get into journalism. And my father had worked in the Middle East for all of his career, not as a journalist. And so I always had an interest in the region. And so, yeah, I um, then went back to university. I say back to university, to university as a mature student. Yeah. And going to City University, where you did your BA in journalism, did you always then know that you wanted to be a foreign reporter, specifically in the Middle East? Yes, I did. As I say, my my father had worked, although based out of London, mainly in, in Saudi Arabia, in Bahrain, in Kuwait, in Iraq, for more than three decades, really. So I'd always followed the politics of the region. And then when I started my university degree, I also started doing um, evening classes in Arabic. I, I kind of thought about the idea of possibly, you know, heading off to Iran or the Middle East afterwards. And I can't really remember whether the Farsi classes were full or not running at that point. And it was a toss up between Farsi and Arabic and I ended up doing Arabic um, evening classes and then yes the whole way through doing my BA that was really where I wanted to go was to head out to the Middle East but I also didn't want to be somewhere where there were already loads of foreign journalists or or freelancers um, in places like Beirut or in Cairo and um, Yemen looked quite appealing and I started reading a lot about it so yeah I I actually missed my my graduation in the end I was already in Yemen by that stage. (laughs) And when you decided to go to the Middle East to report, did you have anyone discourage you? 
I mean, most people that I spoke about it, certainly in the journalism world, their more concern was you're just not going to get much work because it's Yemen and people aren't really interested in Yemen that much. But when I started off there, I went and worked for a local English language newspaper. But also I wasn't doing it sort of straight out of university in my early 20s. I was doing it straight out of university in my early 30s. So I suppose I had a slightly more worldly experience than you would do 10 years down the line than, than others. And, you know, starting at an English language newspaper is actually a very good way to do it because you're learning from the local journalists then who already have a kind of obviously a very good knowledge of the country and of the politics and everything. And you can get up to speed quite quickly with all of that in a small space of time. And actually, you know, when I went to Yemen, there wasn't a conflict, there wasn't a war, there was you know, a lot of political shenanigans going on. But then within, I mean, before I went, I have to say, I did go to meet with a foreign editor at the Times, and I hadn't done any work there and sort of said, listen, I'm a freelancer, I'm going off to Yemen. And he said to me, well, we don't really take much stuff from Yemen unless it's about terrorism or history. (laughs) And then within literally three weeks of arriving in the country, what became known as the parcel bomb plot happened, which was when Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, who are based in Yemen, put bombs on planes in printer cartridges that were bound for the US, um, one of which was picked up here in the UK. So things rapidly got very hectic. And I hadn't had a byline in a single newspaper anywhere in the world, uh, apart from the student newspaper at City University prior to that. And literally in my first three weeks there, I filed my first byline was a front page story for the Times here in London, the front page for the Irish Times, and the front page for the Yemen Times, all on the same day. So yes, it got quite stressful quite quickly. And, uh, you know, and a lot of people say to me, how do you get into journalism? And that was very much about being in the right place at the right time, because that just doesn't happen to have your sort of first byline on, on, on three newspapers in, in, this, in the space of 24 hours is pretty unusual. And as you mentioned, when you first arrived in Yemen, it didn't have the conflict that we now have there. What, for listeners, was it like at that time? It was the beginning of the Arab Spring. Yeah, so I arrived about six months before the Arab Spring started. And Yemen, I have to say, is, you know, is a wonderful place. It's beautiful. I was living in the old city of Sana'a in a sort of 400-year-old ancient tower house. And the Yemenis are extremely eccentric as well as being very welcoming. And it was actually a very good period now, looking back on it, to become familiar with the country and familiar with people and, and all the rest of it before the kind of Arab Spring kicked off really in, in, in January of the following year. And so I, I suppose now in hindsight, I've seen, you know, the full transition, if you like, from how Yemen was before the Arab Spring through the revolution. And then, you know, obviously the period then afterwards of of civil war that then started in 2014. So uh, in that respect, I'm, I'm very glad that I've, I was there for that full period to understand you know, what the country was like prior to all of that, as well as, um, you know, the, the, the kind of trajectory it's taken since. And when the civil war began, you were the first international journalist to get into the country. When you saw that happening, did you feel an urge that you needed to be there and covering it? Because I think to some people, if you see something like that, you don't want to run towards it. Yeah. Well, I'd left, yeah, I mean, I'd lived there from 2010 to the end of 2014. And I was there when the when the Houthi rebels who are on one side of the conflict now took over the capital Sana'a in, in 2014 and I was living there. And it got to the end of 2014 and I'd been there sort of, yes, over four years. And I really thought I need to do something else in Yemen. With everything else that was going on in the Middle East, I worked out that approximately 50% of my copy that I'd filed in that year 
had not been published, had been spiked. And I really kind of got to the point of what am I doing here? And I left with the intention of doing other work and then only going back to Yemen if I was specifically commissioned to do stuff. And then, of course, things got very heated early in 2015. And then the airstrikes and the the Saudi-led coalition, as they are now, intervened in Yemen in March 2015. And yeah, I did. I felt an absolute sort of, I felt very compelled to go back. I think mainly because... You know, for for those four years, not only had I got to know the country so well and got very good contacts and everything else, but it was there was so little coverage of what was going on then. It was so difficult to get into the country because they shut down the airspace. And I knew that I could get back and I felt compelled to because for all, you know, those years that I was there, this was now the time in March 2015 when the voice of Yemenis really needed to get out. People needed to know what was going on and to understand why it was going on. And so, yes, I went in by boat from the Horn of Africa, from Djibouti. Uh, I did that boat crossing three times in order to be able to get in the country when the airspace was shut down, to be able to to report from the besieged city as it was then um, of Aden on, on the south coast and to do that kind of work. But I wouldn't be able to do any of that if it wasn't for the contacts that I built up during my four years there. People that went out of their way, not just went out of their way, but risked their lives to help me in order to do that work. So when I go back, I don't stay in hotels. I stay in families' homes. I have a network of people of Yemenis across the country on both sides of the conflict who help me out in towns and cities all over the country, in the north, the south, in the east, in the west, where I can go and they are, they're like, I call them my guardian angels because without them, I probably wouldn't be sitting here now and I certainly wouldn't be able to do the work that I do. Now, the situation in Yemen is clearly very complicated. For listeners, can you give us a brief introduction as to what has happened in the past couple of years? People's always excuse about kind of covering Yemen before was, oh, it's complicated. And I always kind of disagreed and said, no, that's just an excuse not to kind of write about it. But now it has become incredibly complicated. And um, trying to explain it succinctly is is quite a challenge. But yes, it was very much a start as as a political based war. There are now religious elements to it as well. And there is this kind of aspect of the Sunni versus Shia sort of more broader conflict that you see in the region and that is an element of it now because obviously the the Houthis are a predominantly Shia group and you've got Sunni um, Salafi brigades and militias now who are also fighting very much for religious reasons but at its heart it was a civil war that started essentially as a war between, between two presidents and it's now kind of got morphed into the into and sucked into the power struggle really between Iran and Saudi Arabia because Iran has since been providing support to the Houthis. So that's why the broader consequences of it and everything that's happening now over the Iran deal, US sort of hawks against Iran as well, support for Saudi Arabia, that all plays into the conflict in Yemen and makes it pretty messy. And for the reasons you just mentioned, I mean, it's very difficult to get in the country. Once you're in there, it's not a country that is known for particularly welcoming press coverage of this. Have you encountered difficulties doing your job there because people didn't want journalists covering these topics? Yes, absolutely. I mean, certainly even at that point in, in, in the early part of the conflict, it was incredible, incredibly difficult to get it in the country because the Saudi-led coalition were going out of their way to stop journalists getting in. So normally in a conflict situation where the airspace is shut down, most journalists will get on the UN humanitarian air services. So they have humanitarian flights that are taking in um, supplies and journalists are normally allowed on those flights. Now the Saudi-led coalition grounded flights when they knew that there were journalists on board and all of the 
the the inventory and the the manifest for those planes has to go through the Saudi coalition. So they were stopping journalists from getting in the country. Equally, the Houthi rebels who are in control on, um, or the Houthi movement who are in control of the capital still up in the north, they were not very welcoming and often haven't been to journalists as well. You know, I have had my run-ins with them. And so, yes, you have to kind of take all that, not just into consideration, but navigate all of those different aspects of it. And and effectively, Yemen is now two countries. So you have to get a visa to get into the coalition or uh, the Saudi coalition or Yemeni government controlled territory. And then you have to get permission from the Houthis who they're fighting to be able to get access into the north. You've previously said there are two points where you thought you might not make it when you were reporting. What were those? Um... Yeah, there were certainly a couple of incidents in 2011 during the revolution. One was pretty much my own fault. I just put myself in a bad situation when the first time the soldiers opened fire on protesters back in May 2011 and I was with them. And yeah, that was a pretty hairy night and I got out of there by luck rather than anything else. And there was there was over 200 people injured and at least 12 people shot dead. And I was, yeah literally had to leg it with the protesters whilst we had several dozen if not up to 100 soldiers opening fire on us in a street situation so yeah that was that was slightly hair raising and then I had yeah this incident a few years after that um, when somebody opened fire on the car I was traveling in that was then reported as kind of an assassination attempt I don't know whether it was somebody actually trying to kill me or just trying to frighten me off And given my stubbornness, as I mentioned, yeah, I did leave a couple of days after that. I did leave the country for a couple of weeks. I came back to the UK and then I went back. And a lot of people said to me, what are you doing going back? And I said, well, I don't know who I'm running from. I don't know who was responsible for this. There were various fingers pointed at, you know, different people. And people said to me, have you got any enemies? I said, well, yes, there's a long list. I'd done a lot of critical reporting of Saudi Arabia at that time, of America. i just two days before done the first interview with Ali Abdullah Saleh who was Yemen's president of 33 years and I did the first interview with him after he stepped down from power and he was particularly unhappy with the British at the time and he had something of a history of going after the nationals of particular states that he wasn't very happy with and so yeah I could have pointed the finger in a lot of different directions the only people I knew it wasn't was Al-Qaeda funnily enough that was a taxi driver I just hopped into his cab and it was his quick thinking really that that probably saved both of us but Yeah, that was a pretty close call, particularly for him. I mean, he felt the bullets going through the hair on the back of his neck when somebody opened fire on the car and all I got was a few glass cuts from the windows being smashed from the bullets. But yeah, you kind of of roll with that kind of stuff. Do you find that your fellow journalists always stick together and you look out for each other when you're covering in places like that? Is there much of a community or...? Yes, definitely. I mean, you have to remember in something in a place like Yemen, it's a pretty small community. It's not Beirut. It's not Istanbul. It's not Cairo. So even during 2011, there was only kind of half a dozen of us there, really. There was a few more at the beginning, and then a whole bunch of them got deported from one house one, one night, foreign journalists. And then we were down to sort of four of us, really. And yes, absolutely. We were all freelancers. We were all looking out for each other. I had We had to move around quite a bit because we were trying to dodge being deported as well, so not necessarily staying in the same place for too long. I was sharing an apartment with one American freelance at one point and um, he went missing the one night when I had, you know, my close encounter um, with soldiers, with, with the protesters. And he was on the same street and I spent three hours looking for him after that, went through the morgue and everything else. 
I found him back at home uh, sipping wet a bottle of whiskey, at which point I, I was, yeah, slightly fuming. Um, the battery on his phone had gone and he hadn't, hadn't been answering his phone. But yeah, we definitely looked out for each other. And also because I was much older than the others because I started into journalism so, so much later in life that I was very much the mother figure. Um, and yes, quite a couple of them used to call me Yemen mum. <laughs> and also coming from racing, I kind of had a bit, a bit more of a background in sort of first aid and all the rest of it and concerns and uh, about risk and things like that. Although a lot of them said that I, I probably took more risks than them. I don't know. Now, you've touched on a lot of things you've seen being on the front line reporting in Yemen. And I wonder what it must be like when you see things of such a serious nature and then you look at the media coverage in the UK and elsewhere. And perhaps the story about Yemen is very far back and on the front of the paper is a story about the backstop and Brexit. Is that jarring? Yeah, it is really hard. I mean, Yemen has always been low down on the list. Even during the Arab Spring, there were very few journalists again because of access issues, but very little interest in it compared to places like Egypt and and even Libya and and, and Syria. I think um, with Yemen now, particularly when, with a lot of the coverage that is done, you know, it's very it can be very surface level because you've got journalists that have only been there maybe once before. You know, it's a challenge for journalists of you know trying to find stories that will be more appealing both to editors and to and to readers but yeah it's it's it is very very frustrating I mean even in 2011 that was a revolution that went on for nine months in Yemen when you look at the coverage that Egypt had for a protest that went on for a fortnight and in Yemen I would suspect that was probably the largest city in the world has ever seen it was a mile-long tented sit-in for nine months in the middle of a city and yet there was just a handful of journalists there covering it. And similarly now with, with the conflict in Yemen, you know, as, as the UN is repeatedly telling us, it's the world's worst humanitarian crisis. And yet the coverage is pretty minimal. Now, talking of coverage, we do have the exhibition which you have co-curated at the Imperial War Museum North, which is Yemen Inside a Crisis. I was wondering if you could just talk us through what is in that exhibition. Yeah, so the exhibition is going to focus really on the humanitarian aspect of the conflict because going into the politics of how the war started in Yemen and what's going on now, it's, yeah, it's it's extremely complicated. And the main issue now in Yemen is that far more people are dying as a result of the humanitarian crisis, which is a knock-on effect of the war, than actually are dying in the fighting or even by airstrikes. Uh, it's actually been a really interesting process for me because it's not, you know, it's not a line of work that I thought I'd end up getting into and going through the whole design process. It's been really fascinating. And so, yes, we've um, been getting items out from Yemen to try to try to kind of illustrate the humanitarian crisis going back to really sort of 2014, 2015, but also, you know, touching on the politics of how this all came from, from the Arab Spring from 2011. But particularly looking on themes of, of health, water, children, particularly how they've been affected by this and will be for generations to come. Because when you talk about humanitarian crisis, when you talk about a population facing famine and ch- children starving to death, which is what I've witnessed repeatedly now over the last few years, that's an entire generation of children growing up malnourished, the ones that, that, that survive. And you're talking about, you know, stunted growth as, as a result of that, uh, you know, issues over schooling and 
it's a you know, even if the war sort of stopped tomorrow, that impact will continue for particularly for children for for many decades and for the rest of their lives as a result of that. So yes, we've got lots of yeah sort of interviews with children and families about how they're coping in the humanitarian crisis and particularly about the issue in Yemen, which is, you know, when you think of starving people, you think about there not being enough food. And actually in Yemen, in most places, it's not about a lack of food. You can go into the markets and there is bags of flour, rice, beans or whatever there, but people can't afford to buy it. So the underlying problem is the economic collapse that's happened as a result of the conflict. And you can literally go into a hospital now in Yemen and, you know, 200 metres and see starving children and children that will die in the next few hours after you've seen them and then go a few hundred metres down the road to the market and see food sitting there. So it's about trying to explain the complexities of that and illustrating the the massive human suffering that is going on as a result of this and to kind of bringing that home to people, really. And you yourself, uh, you now based back in the UK, is that is that correct? Yes. Yeah. How do you find that? Because often when you read, uh, I suppose, biographies, memoirs of reporters from conflict areas, they talk of how it's very difficult to move from covering something like that to coming back to, I guess, what is in comparison rather beige. Yeah, I certainly, when I first came back in, in sort of 2015, I suppose, it was very surreal. And then actually my first year of not being in Yemen in 2015, I actually ended up being there for nine months. So I didn't really spend much time back in the UK until 2016. And it's lots of little things. Supermarkets I still struggle with, to be honest with you. It's sort of that thing of, I, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but it's absolutely right. You're kind of looking at the shelves. There's just, just too much choice here. That I, yeah, and I get sort of slightly claustrophobic in supermarkets anyway. So supermarkets always a challenge. And then just being back part of the system, I suppose. It's, you know, sort of really simple things like using or, you know, touching a machine to pay for your your food or whatever else you're paying for and suddenly realizing that now you know somebody in the system somewhere knows exactly that you're buying your fruit and veg on this particular day from Sainsbury's and I suffer a little bit from paranoia anyway so so yeah little things like that that kind of get your mind turning I've kind of got used to it now but I I still feel although I'm back in the UK I I don't feel like I'll be here forever certainly and I still feel that I'm kind of in transit because even I'm going back and forth to, to, to Yemen, but I'm also traveling around doing Yemen-related things, either in the US quite a bit or other parts of the Middle East, going to Jordan and Istanbul and, and things like that. So although I've been based back in the UK since 2016, I probably haven't spent more than probably a total of about a year in my in my house, I think, altogether. So, um, and I, I suppose I'm a bit nomadic anyway. So I, yeah, I'm, I don't think I'll probably be here necessarily for the long term, long term. Uh, are your family happy when you're back in the UK? Do, do they worry about you when you go away? Yeah, I mean, I think my brother always jokes. I always know you when I was living in Yemen. I always knew you, knew you, knew you were right, and only had to look on Twitter to see that you know you were still alive and you're fine. Because you'd end up live tweeting a lot of stuff, and then he was like, "Yeah, I knew I didn't even have to kind of call you or you know send you a message to know you were okay." Then, so yes, and of course they you know worried a lot when I went back and. Particularly in the period, actually, before the Civil War started, kidnapping was a massive issue. And I had six friends kidnapped in a very short space of time. And one of whom was a fellow journalist, photojournalist, Luke Summers. And he was the only one out of that six who didn't make it out alive when US Navy SEALs went in to try and rescue him. 
And and I did sit down with my family then and said, listen, there's a likelihood this is going to happen. And I literally wrote out a sort of document for them saying this is kind of the procedure you need to go through and what not to do and what to do and, and all the rest of it and sort of said any questions. You know, my mother cried at that point. But, but yeah, I think you have to be quite practical about it and you can't sort of bury your head in the sand as well about the realities of that kind of thing happening when you're doing that kind of work. And are there other countries other than Yemen that you want to go and work in and report from? There are, but I still, it's, I don't know, I, I kind of joke about having Stockholm syndrome for Yemen. I'm kind of, I've become so sort of obsessed with it that it's kind of, yeah, I'm sort of caged by it. But I think as long as, you know, things are as they are in Yemen and there is this kind of issue of lack of coverage and a massive lack of understanding as well then I will actually keep doing it. And then just a few final things. One was, how do you finance something like going and freelance foreign reporting in in a country like Yemen, where, as you say, there's no guarantee that your stories are going to land or be received, published, get prominence? How do you go about financing yourself? It's really hard. I mean, when I was living there, it was easier because obviously, you know, living in in what is a third world country or overheads are, very low and then you're only traveling internally in the country so trying to get expenses for that kind of thing is a lot easier but once I left and now this kind of going backwards and forwards it's been incredibly hard I mean in 2015 I was literally flogging my some of my late father's furniture to pay for the flights because the flights increased by sixfold as a result once the airspace opened again yeah the the covering the costs is huge now you know not to mention things like insurance when you're running around in a, in a conflict zone that's a daily cost now we touched on many of the obstacles you faced reporting in a country like Yemen and there's one more potential obstacle I wanted to ask you about which is as a female reporter reporting from an Islamist country does that present a challenge yeah I mean as yeah as a Islamic country I think most people's perception would be that it'd be a lot a lot harder but actually I found it easier and certainly with the conflict at the moment, if you look at all of the best reporting that's come out of Yemen, it's all been from women because the access has been so much easier for women. Because now when I go to Yemen and when I'm traveling across the country, I travel as a Yemeni woman. So I wear niqab, I wear veil. And I now, depending if I'm going in somewhere that's particularly sketchy, I've got green eyes. I'll even wear dark contact lenses to darken my eyes because I wear contact lenses anyway. That was Yemeni's suggestions because they said I look too blonde even though I have dark hair and yeah for women you can therefore get access much more easily and also because it is a segregated society in that respect that the women you know in many respects very much separately to to the men as a woman you can get access to the female population if you like particularly in rural villages where it's very conservative I can go and sit and talk with the women where even Yemeni men wouldn't be allowed to go and and sit and talk with the women in the same way and certainly foreign men wouldn't be allowed to so it means you get access across the boards as as a foreign woman to being able to sit with the men and chat with them as well as being able to sit with the women and talk with them as well as well as being safer traveling around the country because the kind of Yemeni social etiquette if you like is if a Yemeni woman so which is what I dress as in you know all in all in black with my veil is sitting in a car with with Yemeni men you will not get asked for ID at a checkpoint or or anything else and the the men in the front will and they'll just say it's my family and they'll let you through and I mean most people that sets off alarm bells security wise but you're bearing in mind you're in a civil war where you're dealing with multiple militias who are aligned to various different people and if you want to try and get official access for all of that you'd have 
to get permission from sort of 20 different little fighting groups in order to be able to get 100 miles up the road. So it's not that I'm there kind of illegally because I have a visa and I have permission from the main authorities, but the main authorities do not control the individuals that are necessarily manning the checkpoints at, and you know every few hundred metres along the road. So it just makes life a lot, lot easier. So yeah, I think for, for me, I wouldn't be able to do, again, the work that I do unless I was a woman, really, certainly access-wise. Thanks, Iona. And thanks for listening. And if you like this podcast, do check out our previous episodes. They're all available online. Just go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash balls. And they include episodes with Kate Hoey, Labour MP, Kay Burley, Victoria Atkins, Lionel Shriver and many more. And while you're there, why not also leave us a review? I would really like to hear what you think about the podcast. Mm-hmm.